morning, Mountain Community Church. Our scripture reading, our sermon scripture reading this morning is going to be in Genesis 25, verses 1 through 18. So I'll give you a moment to get there. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jukshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jukshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephim, sorry, Ephah, Epher, Hanuk, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. While he was still living, he sent them away uh, from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zorah, the Hittite, east of Marmari. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried, was Sarah his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled at Birlilorah. These are the generations of Ishmael. Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mishim, Mishma, Dima, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nifsh, uh, sorry, Nafish, uh, Gidma, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes, according to their tribes, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Evola to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over again against all his kinsmen. This is the word of God. Andy drew the short straw. Thank you for going to bat for us, brother. Would you join me in prayer? I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. You alone are worthy of all praise and gratitude. 
Your glory shines brilliantly and powerfully throughout eternity. What an incredible privilege is ours to approach you in worship. May we faithfully commend your majesty and greatness to our generation. I thank you, Lord, for this church, Milton Community Church, for each person who comprises this body. Make us what you intend for us to be, holy, completely conformed to Christ's image. We pray that you would use us in this community to make your name known, to reflect your glory and your goodness. Father, we have a number of practical challenges facing our congregation. Some have experienced sickness of late, and we ask that you might bring healing and restoration of strength. Some are facing and dealing with very serious health issues. We commit them to your care. We pray that, Father, you might minister to them. We always ask for healing, for full health to abound. Lord, whatever the journey that they're encountering now, we pray for your comfort, your peace, your empowerment, Lord, and for you to use them for your glory as you continue to sanctify not only them, but all of us who join arms with them in this journey. Lord, we pray for the many opportunities that confront us each and every day, that you would reveal yourself in each and every situation, not only in us, but through us, for those that encounter us. May your grace and peace sustain your servants. Lord, we pray that you would use all of us to exalt your name, to make your gospel known. We pray, especially this morning, for Luke and Jackie and their family as they prepare, as they learn, as they uh, become equipped to serve you in the nations, among the nations. Lord, we pray that you will bless their physical health, that you will strengthen them as they deal with sickness. Lord, we pray that you would guard their spiritual lives, their disciplines daily, that interruptions and distractions might be pushed to the side. Enable them, Lord, to learn well, to retain all the skills that you're imparting to them. Lord, we ask that you would make them acutely aware of all the opportunities that you put before them to be bold gospel witnesses for you. Remind them, Lord, even at this moment, that they are on our minds and our hearts and a part of our prayers. Lord, we lift up this morning the opportunity through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering to bless those that are serving you around this world and all the hard places, the difficult places. I pray that, Lord, you would just reap uh, an ocean full of resources for the work, for the gospel work. Raise up others, Lord, many others who will obey your call and go to the nations with the gospel. Father, we pray that you bless the resources here at our church, that we can advance the gospel here in this community, in this region. Equip us and embolden us to eagerly proclaim Christ in our community. We are your missionaries here. We are the evangelism program in this community. So fill our hearts with a passion 
Lord, with a confidence, with a commitment, Lord, to your gospel, that we might be your good news people among all that we meet each and every day. Make us faithful to this assignment and give us fruit, Lord, for the labor and for your kingdom. Now we pray that you will guide us as we turn our attention to your word, that you would speak to us as only you can in power, in conviction, in reproof, in rebuke, correction, Lord, and in edification, encouragement, to make us what you want us to be, all for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So China's first emperor, by the name of Shen Shi Wang, is famous for the terracotta warriors, uh, thousands of statues that display the magnificent power that he achieved during his rule. He's famous for uniting China, but is less well known for his quest for immortality. He sent his subjects, many of them, out to try to discover immortality and tried all sorts of magical potions and substances. Ironically, this first emperor, his determination to cheat death actually hastened his own demise. He died around the age of 50. Somehow he got the idea that mercury was a special substance with life-changing properties, life-enhancing properties, and so it seems that it made its way into his diet through the uh, help of others that were serving him at the time. And he suddenly fell, fell ill and died on one of his numerous tours admiring his own empire at around the age of 50. He's not the only, he's not the first, he won't be the last. There's always a search going on for some magical formula to extend life. It's been going on as long as history has been going on. It's an obsession for some. We see it played out each and every day in our culture. Wang's secret potions, Ponce de Leon's search for the fountain of youth, blood transfusions, trying to add youth to the body. I read about one pope who practiced this religiously, thinking that by taking blood transfusions from young people, he would actually get younger or preserve, preserve himself. Cryogenics, we've read about that. Ted Williams had his body frozen uh, in order to preserve it, hoping that someone might come up with a cure and enable him to come back to life, I think. Sleeping chambers, exercise, fads, all of it designed, all of it pointing us to try to extend this life or to make this life even better. Interestingly enough, the global lifespan has increased significantly in the last 70 years. In 1950, the global average age was about 48 at death. Today, it's something just over 73 years of age. Now, the longest it's been reported anyone lived was one woman that uh, we heard lived to be 122 years of age, but there's even a lot of controversy about that. Some people believe that there was a case of a stolen identity and that maybe she wasn't as old as she claimed to be. Be the first case, I think, of anyone claiming to be older than they actually are. My point 
this morning is that no one lives forever in this world. You know that. I know that. We're confronted with it each and every day. Death is sin's curse on this broken, fallen world, and every human is destined to die if the Lord tarries in His return. Even faithful followers of God, those who love God and seek to obey God with their lives, people like Abraham, people like Abraham. We followed and studied him for a few months now, and Abraham, we acknowledge, is the primary ancestor from which our Christian faith has come. While he lived a long life, he too died. And his death invites us to examine his life and his obituary, as we would do for anyone. This is what we do, right? When we come to the end of this life, it causes everyone to pause and examine what the person has done in their life, and maybe even how they've died. In Genesis chapter 25, 1 through 11, we find two subjects here that I think are important to consider about Abraham. One is his offspring, and two is his obituary. What was said about him when he died? What do we know about him? So let's think about Abraham's offspring. He's one of the key figures in all of history. You might say he's one of the pillar figures of all history. Genesis 25 shows that he was the primary ancestor for Israel. We know that. But he's also primary ancestor for Islam and for Christianity as well as Judaism. He's the primary ancestor for many Middle Eastern tribes and nations. Three of the most influential religions find their roots in Abraham, but many of the peoples of the Middle Eastern area find their heritage traced all the way back to Abraham. And this text this morning tells us this. His life, Abraham's life, is the actual beginning of God's redemptive work in this world. That's where it's all rooted. So Abraham initiates the program for creating a people for himself. By these people, God would bring salvation and blessing to the nations, hence the promise that he made to Abraham. In these verses, as Andy read them, and uh, I'm smart enough to realize I wasn't going to read this text for you this morning, and Tommy has said he's already done his duty, so he's not going to read them. So we picked on the young guy and made him read them. But you see here, with all this list of names, a glimpse into Abraham's beginning and how God used him to bring about many tribes and nations there in that area. But he gives us these genealogies here for a reason. If you remember when we first began with Abraham, the, it came right on the heels of Genesis 11, which was the story of the Tower of Babel, right? So God scatters the people. And at the end of chapter 11, he does something as he is often do, doing in his text, is that he pulls back, zooms out, if you will, and gives us a broader picture. And so we see this genealogy there at the end of chapter 11. Then we zoom in and we follow Abraham from chapter 12 to this chapter. And now we get to chapter 25 and Abraham has come to the end of his life. 
and we're zooming out again and we're looking at this genealogy and so these genealogies serve as what is called as an inclusio that means it's a technical bible study type word that means that you have a similarity of language or maybe even exact language that's the same or content or in this case genealogy at the beginning genealogy at the end that serve as a bracket they serve as a frame that enables us to spotlight what's going on in the middle here we zoom in on abraham and now we're pulling back out and god's giving us a thirty thousand foot view through these genealogies so it's an important technique that we find in scripture so what do we see particularly in these genealogies of abraham at his death well we find out that abraham has children by three women right three women this opens up Pandora's box for us. Sarah was his wife, and through her, God said, this is the seed. This is how I'm going to do what I'm going to do through you and bless all the nations. Then we have Hagar. She's the surrogate childbearer. She's the one that Abraham and Sarah, in their own ingenuity, in their own weakness, decided that this is a way for us to fulfill God's plan and purpose. And so she had Ishmael. And then we have Keturah. Now some people think because we like to see things literally that, that uh, Keturah was Abraham's second wife after Sarah died. But that's probably not true because Abraham was a very old man when Sarah died at 137 and probably wasn't very potent as we would think of in the area of reproduction at that age so she probably became his the text uses the term concubine earlier in this marriage so abraham had more than one wife essentially more than a concubine is a woman who lives with a man as if she were a wife but she has inferior status she's not on the same level so we need to take a moment and think about this issue of polygamy because if you're talking to someone who's not raised in the church, not familiar with the Bible, that's going to be one of the things they're going to ask you and go, well, you know, you people are hypocrites. You talk about this, you talk about that, but basically, you know, your heroes of the faith, they were, they practiced polygamy. You know, how can you adopt such a strong stance when it comes to all these family issues and marriage issues so what should we think about polygamy Lamech is the one who initiated this if you remember back in Genesis 4 19 a wicked man but he took for himself two wives and began this process it's on display again here with Abraham as we get into studying Jacob's life and his line we're going to see that Jacob the same thing happened to him he took two wives not necessarily by his own doing, but he agreed to it. And then he had children by their handmaids. So he essentially had four women that bore children uh, to him. We know that David had multiple wives. Solomon's reported had 700 wives. I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> 700 wives. And he had 300 concubines on, in addition to that. I don't know what Solomon was thinking. It's strange that he's a man that God used to write so much about wisdom. 
Maybe it was at the end of his life and he had earned the right to speak about wisdom. I don't know. 700 wives and 300 concubines. So given that we have these patriarchs that practiced polygamy, is it permissible? Does this mean that we should all become practicing polygamists? Well, I need to tell you that Scripture nowhere ever presents polygamy and concubinage as God's program. It's never been designed by God. These practices were not created or sanctioned by God. They are not moral according to God. Scripture does record them, but God is is want to do this. God always exposes all of our warts. He doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't hide things. He puts it all out there. This is the reality. But exposing these things Making them known what actually happened doesn't mean that God is condoning them in any way, shape, or form. While Scripture records them, description does not equal prescription. The marriage pattern established at creation was one of monogamy. One man, one woman shall become one flesh. Joined together. What God has joined together, let no man tear apart. It's commanded and commended throughout Scripture, monogamy. The seventh commandment forbids adultery. Deuteronomy forbids Israel's future king from multiplying wives. Jesus affirms the goodness of God's design for monogamy in Mark chapter 10. The church elders had qualifications that said they were to be one woman men. One woman men. Marriage is a picture of spiritual realities in the Scripture. In fact, it was given to us to teach us about our relationship with the Lord. We as the church, we as believers and followers of Christ in Christ are His bride. And so nowhere we see the whole Scripture, so much of the Scripture deals with spiritual adultery the word is used where where the people of God wanted to take other gods for themselves rather than being committed to only God having one husband if you will so scripture records these instances of polygamy why why not to endorse it but to condemn them and show how destructive they are that's why they're here that's why God pulls the veil back and shows them to us. Abraham's household suffered much conflict as a result of these three women. Jacob's household is going to be stressed beyond imagination because he had four women who bore children. There was Leah, Rachel, and their two handmaids. David's story is tragic and resulted in devastating pain and suffering because he violated the principle that God had laid out. Solomon's behavior preceded the splitting of God's kingdom, dividing into two kingdoms, and it's been struggling ever since. Ever since. So these stories are included to warn us how harmful it is to stray outside of God's stipulations. So what about these genealogies? What should we take away from them? What should we learn? Well, we know Abraham fathered children by three women, but these genealogies also are not complete. They give us just some glimpses, kind of fly over, gives us a few places to kind of zero in and look closely, but 
It's not intended to be exhaustive. We see Hagar mentioned. We know Ishmael was the son that came from Abraham through Hagar. And then we see mention of the 12 tribes, the 12 sons that Ishmael had. Interesting, isn't it? So Ishmael, who is the child of the flesh, also has 12 tribes, just like Jacob, who represents the promised line. Keturah, this woman that we know very little about, has six sons. Six sons. We don't know anything about the next generations here, but we have six sons. And let me just give you a brief description of each one of these. Zimram, these people settled in Arabia. Okay, Jokshan, Medan, and Midian, the descendants became traders, merchants around Israel in this Middle Eastern region. The Midianites, you're going to remember that name because it appears a lot in Scripture, the Midianites gave us Moses' wife, Sephora. The Midianite traders uh, sold Joseph into Egypt. The Midianites became enemies of Israel. Ishbak, the namesake of a town in Syria. Shua, a name of a town near Babylon. So you start to get the idea that all the people surrounding what we know as geopolitical Israel there that are not Jewish, not Hebrew descendants, still came from Abraham. Isn't that interesting? So you have all this feuding and conflict that goes on in that area, and it's really just a family squabble that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Then we have Sarah, who gave birth to Isaac, and Isaac, as we will see the next time we take, uh, we get into Genesis, will give us Esau and Jacob, the twin boys. And from Jacob, we find Abraham's grandsons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Dan, Issachar, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin, the 12 tribes of Israel. So God, what I want you to see here is that God promised Abraham to what? Give him a land, but to make him many nations and many tribes. And so even before Abraham dies... This is beginning to break forth. The dawn is occurring, how God is fulfilling that promise. He's taking wrong steps by Abraham. He's taking disobedient steps by Abraham. And he's doing what he always does and says, I'll take all things and all things will work together for good for those that love you and call according, uh, love me and call according to my purposes. So the numbers are not yet comparable to the stars or the sands of the seashore, but we can begin to see how they could quickly get there, right? We could see that coming. When you look at these genealogies, you can appreciate God's promise. Eight sons total, 12 grandsons through Ishmael, and only a passing look at the descendants through Keturah's six boys help us to appreciate this. Let me read this verse of Scripture, one verse of Scripture in Judges chapter 12, 7 chapter 12. And the Midianites, underline that, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east. Now, what, is, what happens here in the text we're looking at this morning? Abraham gives all he's got to Isaac. He is now the heir, okay? You guys all don't need to be confused. This is my heir. I'm going to give you things. Now, y'all go away. Where does he send them? 
to the east. All to the east. Judges 7, 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay among the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number. Remember we talked about camels last week and what that represented? Prosperity, wealth. Their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Now that's just in Judges. You see how God is fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham to bless him and to bless the nations through him. So then we have two grandsons through Isaac and 12 great-grandsons just through Jacob. We don't know anything about Esau. Esau's people um, set up barriers against the people of God and he promised to eliminate them altogether. So maybe that's why we don't know anything about Esau's descendants. What God says, God means. What God says, God means. And what God says and means, God does. That's what we can take away from these things this morning. The promise is not yet complete, but it's starting to come into focus, isn't it? It's starting to come into focus. We're starting to see the early light of the morning. And we're starting to be able to make out the contours of what God is going to do. So the second thing is not only Abraham's offspring, but now let's think about Abraham's obituary. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Imagine. (laughs) Imagine one day they're going to write one of those verbs. They're going to put it in the uh, Constitution, Atlanta Constitution, or they're going to put it in the in the Canton Gazette or whatever they publish up there, or it'll be online or somewhere, and it's going to be the summary of your life in this world. Abraham, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175. Pretty much that's it, right? He was laid to rest at Cave Machpelah by his two sons. He's interred there next to his beloved wife, Sarah. Hence, this was the life of Abraham. Short and sweet, right? Breathed his last, died in a good old age, a man full of years, gathered to his people. There are two aspects about his life and death that we need to take note of. He died in a good old age. It's tempting. It's tempting to evaluate life based upon what? Based upon uh, the things that we accumulate, our careers, our contributions to humanity, our bucket list. You got a bucket list? Careful, trick question. You have a bucket list? I hear that conversation going on all the time. What's on my bucket list? I want to do this before I leave this earth. That's how we tend to evaluate the quality of our lives. But God's people need to use something different. I'm not against bucket lists, by the way. But there are other things, more important things, that God's people need to use to evaluate their lives on this earth, right? For Abraham, we know that he was obedient. God said, leave your people, follow me to this land. Abraham probably said, what about the land? Can you tell me about it? God said, I give out information on need no basis. You'll know when you get there. I need you to trust me on this. Okay, I'm in. And he went. He was obedient. He left home, family to follow God's call. He was unselfish. Remember when he and Lot realized they needed to separate part company? Abraham was the elder statesman. He was the uncle. He could have said, this is what I'm going to do. Lot, 
you get your guys and go to the east or go wherever you go. Go where you go and do what you do, but just get out of my sight. But he didn't. He said to Lot, he said, examine the land. You decide what you want. Take what you want. You get first choice. I'll take what's left. And Lot took what appealed to him, what appeared to be the plush place. And Abraham took the barren looking place. But yet God said, I will bless you. Whereas we know judgment came on Sodom and Gomorrah and the valley of Jordan that Lot had chosen. He was courageous. He took a small band of mere servants and went and engaged five armies in battle to take back Lot and his family and all the people that had been abducted from Sodom. We know he was benevolent. He gave tithes to Melchizedek when he came back from that battle. We know that he was incorruptible. Sodom's king tried to get him to uh, take gifts. They said, here, you've earned this. We want to give you gifts. And he said, I'll not take anything from your hand, lest someone say that anything I have came from anywhere but from God, lest you take credit for it rather than give credit to God. He was mighty in prayer. He interceded for Sodom, and God stayed his hand against judgment and actually liberated Lot and his family from the land. But he heard Abraham's prayer. He was a man of great faith. He was willing to offer Isaac, his only son, after waiting so long, he was willing to take him and sacrifice him according to God's instruction. The second thing we see here is not only his long life, but we see that he identified Isaac as the true and only heir of promise. He took it upon himself and he made clear this is what's going to happen. I'm leaving, but the promise is going to continue, and it's going to continue through Isaac, not through anyone else. He and Sarah waited so long and struggled with so many doubts. They invented their own plan to even try to satisfy God's promise. But in the end, he recognized that Isaac indeed is God's promise, and he gave all his great wealth to Isaac, though he did give gifts to his other sons. Don't know how that works out exactly. But the bulk of his estate, that which meant that brought credibility and authority as being Abraham's estate, went to Isaac and only Isaac. And it's through Isaac that God will carry out his redemptive program and bring Christ into the world. He sent all the others away to the east, as we've already mentioned. Abraham is a great, important figure in all of history. He's blessed by God, he's wealthy, yet he lived the, the life of a nomad. He lived in tents all of his life. In spite of God's promises, Abraham died owning only a small parcel of land that included a well, a field, and a cave or a cemetery, a place to bury he and his family. But he lived to see the birth of his twin grandsons, Jacob and Esau. How do we know? Well, we know that Genesis 25, 26 says Isaac was 60 when they were born. We know Abraham was, what, 100 when Isaac was born. So he would have been 160 when they were born. So 15 years before his death, he got to see the birth of these two grandsons through whom the line would continue. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. Now, blessing is important in Scripture, in case you don't know. It means that there are certain details about the future that are made known, predicted. There's the son's inheritance that comes through that. God blesses and affirms 
And so they, they are acknowledged as the leader of the family, essentially. And we see Isaac, once he's received this blessing from God, moves, to, moves back to Beer Laharoi, which, which is interesting because this is the same place where Hagar was found by God when she was pregnant and had run away because Sarah was being harsh toward her. It's the place that means well of the living one who sees me. It's interesting to me, and I haven't yet figured out why it is that Isaac migrates there. Was it because he had some sort of a relationship, kindred relationship with Hagar and Ishmael being his brother? I, I don't know. But I, I'm focusing more on the meaning there. For her, it was a place where she was hopeless, she was destitute, she thought there was no future for herself, and she was willing to curl up and die at that spot. And God came to her and said, basically, I got my eye on you. I'm going to handle this situation. Get up and go back. Stop worrying about this mistreatment. I'm going to take care of you. The son that you're carrying, I'm going to bless, just like I'm going to bless Abraham's son, the promised seed. It's, it's an incredible read and story. There's so much going on there that God doesn't deign to give us insight into. And for a reason. We get so caught up in that. But thinking about the life that Abraham lived and then how he died and the hope, we talked about hope already this morning, that Abraham gives all of us to put our trust and rest in Christ, rest in God. We can take him at his word. And Abraham's life clearly shows that in every way. J.C. Ryle once said, death is a mighty leveler. He spares none, he waits for none, and he stands on no ceremony. He will not tarry till you are ready. He will not be kept out by moats and doors and bars and bolts. Some may boast of their homes as being castles, but such boasting cannot prevent death. Death even comes for God's most devoted servants, like Abraham. God once told Abraham, back in Genesis 15, he said, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And that phrase is repeated again here in verse 8 of this passage. During his life, Abraham saw glimpses of God's rich promises. He partially saw God's promise of many children, but not like the stars or the sands on the sea, sure. He saw the land of his inheritance, but he never realized the inheritance as his own possession. He owned a small cemetery, but not much more than that. And this is true for all of us. The great and precious promises of God stretch out before us like a vast horizon, like space itself. They're massive. They're limitless. They're richer than we can ever imagine. Forgiveness something we assume and take for granted. Removal of all guilt. Can you imagine? Every misstep, every wrong word, every wrong thought that I've ever committed in my life, 
that I might have some sort of remorse for or in some feeling of guilt about a crossword or a harsh word or an inconsiderate act or ignoring someone. All that is going to be removed. No more guilt ever. Contentment that is nothing but pure joy and peace. Being content. Never wondering about what's next or what was before, but being fully content in the moment. Removal of all fear and doubt and sorrow and loneliness and lovelessness. It's all gone. It's all vacated. Eternal life and goodness and rejoicing. We see them. We taste them in this world. We know them in part, but one day we'll know them wholly. One day you'll draw your final breath. I hope that you have a long life in this world. But one day, we all are going to draw our final breath. And for those who are in Christ, it is a triumphant moment. All promises will be fulfilled. But for those who are apart from Christ, it's terrifying and disturbing. To think of facing the righteous, holy judge of all creation and facing him by my own effort, with only my own effort to clothe me, my own shame and guilt, I'll have to face him with that. But for those in Christ, Christ stands between us and the Father and says, he or she's with me. My righteousness has been attributed to this account. And all our failings are put aside. The Apostle Paul, nearing the end of his life in this world, said this. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will afford to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who love His appearing, all those who are eagerly waiting for His appearing. Are you prepared for that moment when it comes? We're all born sinners. We live in sin each and every day. We commit sin. We think sin continually. This is proof that we're born in sin. Christ came because we deserve God's judgment. Christ came incarnate. He became a man. He lived among us. He satisfied all of God's expectations and requirements, and he did it perfectly. The Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Not having any sin of his own, he went to the cross, vicariously laying down his life as a substitute for you and for me. He bore the sins that you and I deserve to die for. And there God poured out every drop of his wrath upon the Son. He took what we deserved and he atoned for it completely, perfectly. The Father accepted this and he validates his approval and acceptance by taking Christ and raising him from the dead. And now he is the first fruits for all of those who put their hope and faith in Christ. Have you considered the claims of the gospel and believed them? Have you believed them for yourself, not through someone else, not hoping, but believing them? Have you confessed your sin before God, owned it, 
God says, there's none righteous, no, not one. Yes, Father, I know you're speaking about me. I have rebelled. I have sinned. I stand in the crosshairs of your judgment. I know that. Yes, but I believe Jesus came into this world for me. He lived the life I could not live. He went to the cross and died where I couldn't do this. And he arose from the dead, having atoned for my sin. And I stand in faith, taking you at your word, your promise, the promise that you gave to Abraham and has been being passed down through every generation until now. I trust that promise for me. Have you repented? of your sin and put your hope your hope in Christ and Christ alone today we celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember our promises in Christ we have grape juice we have bread they serve to remind to symbolize to us the blood of Christ and the body of Christ that were given for us he instructed us to observe this supper and do it remembering him Remembering what he's done. Remembering that the penalty for sin has been paid for in Christ. Remembering that the power of sin no longer is something that we can uh, be just subject to. That we have power to overcome sin daily in our lives through the presence of God's Spirit. And we have the promise of being delivered beyond the reach and the presence of sin when Christ returns. This is why we come to the table. If you've believed the gospel and you have confessed and repented of your sin and been scripturally baptized and you are a faithful member of this church or a church of like faith and practice, then you're invited this morning to come and participate in this supper with us. If you're not yet a believer, we encourage you to talk to one of our elders, to talk to one of our pastors and have that discussion about how to become a believer and a faithful church member. The Bible tells us that God takes our approach to the ordinance seriously. He warns us not to come ill-prepared. So I would encourage you to examine your own hearts this morning before you enter in. I want to close this time with an audible prayer, but first I want to give you a moment to examine your heart before God. And then I'm going to pray, and when I pray, we finish, we'll stand together, and we're going to sing together, and you're invited to come and receive the elements. Return to your seats where, we'll, where we will uh, partake of them together after the song. So let's pray this morning and ask God to examine our hearts. Our Father, we do praise you this morning for who you are, for the gospel that offers us this incredible hope. I pray this morning that you would search our hearts, that you would reveal to us the state of our hearts before you. And Lord, where there's one who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they turn from 
themselves and their sin and put their trust completely in you. For those of us who have claimed a relationship with you, that you would search our hearts, Lord, and remove any sin that continues to be a stumbling block in our fellowship with you or with our fellow brothers and sisters. That, Lord, you would cleanse us, that you'd break us from these idols in our lives, that we might approach your table with a clean heart, clear conscience, eager to rejoice in your presence and in your promises. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.